Welcome to episode 159 of the Cooch Street Podcast. This week, something a little bit different. Kids Johnson, longtime friend of the podcast, joins Gary K. Wolf as special co-host in an episode recorded at the recent Worldcon in San Antonio, Texas. Kidge, Gary, and guest John Kessel discuss the works of the late, great Alfred Bester. It's a special episode of the podcast, something a little bit different, and something that we all hope you enjoy as much as I have have, acting for the first time in my capacity as listener. We join Kidge, Gary, and John at the beginning of their conversation about Alfred Bester. Live from San Antonio, welcome to the Cood Street Podcast with... Kids Johnson and John Kessel, who are going to talk with me. Jonathan is not with us here in San Antonio, so it's going to be just me. Kids is being my co-host. Hi there, um, everyone. I am happy to be the co-host. I'll try to talk in an Australian accent. That would be good. And which will sound exactly like my mid-American accent. And John, what accent are you going to use? My good old Buffalonian accent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sounds good. We're, we're, we started. We came up with a topic because Kids and I were talking yesterday. Among you're teaching Alfred Bester this semester. Well, I'm not actually teaching at all this semester. Wow. But I got a bug up my nose as I do from time to time. I read a lot of classic science fiction, and uh, read uh, "The Stars My Destination" again for what is the seven thousandth time. And as always, I found myself amazed and mystified by just sort of the mastery that he shows us. I'm absolutely astonished every time I read it at how well he engages us and at how gorgeously he plots and structures. Um, So the question I started asking myself is, how does he do that? What is it he does? I'm very aware of style. As a writer's question. As a writer. It's a writer's question. I like to teach him. I I have taught him once before, and I like to teach him because he's so, so damn good. And he's somebody that even modern readers who have very little patience will find themselves sort of lured into. I I teach a survey course Mm -hmm. in science fiction I have for 30 years now, and I often have Bester on the syllabus, uh, usually the Star's My Destination, if it's in print, which it's not right now in the States. But, um... Uh, well, I, 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 the, the Star's My Destination is in print in the Library of America volumes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, which are that's conveniently right, that's right. selected. Oh, you're right, absolutely right. So maybe I should just assign that, uh, Gary. That would be a good idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, it's amazing to me, and maybe not so amazing, that the students always respond to it. Well, and particularly the male students respond. But some of the women students, uh, you know, there are issues in that, that, that mm-hmm. book of, uh, you know, it's basically, you're here as a rapist, all right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's an issue that comes up in a way it didn't come up in, in yeah. reading that book 20 years ago. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, it's, a, it's such a, an engaging story. And, uh, and even though some of the things might be a little creaky from the 1950s, it, it seems really modern in, in a way that so much of the fiction of that time doesn't. And that's what I'm curious about because I've only taught it once and I still had the same sensation that most of the stuff from the 50s, even most of Heinlein, when you're trying to introduce a new generation of students, they immediately pick up on the parts that are dated, the parts that just echo. Uh, And I think you may be right about some of the gender and sexual attitudes, but stylistically and in terms of having a, a, a series of really radically unsympathetic characters, I find that students see that as a completely modern work. They're rather amazed to find out how old it is. Right, they are, actually. And, and uh, uh, you know, Bester, um, I think he's... One thing that, that is behind that that book, and his other writing, too, is his experience as 
one is a, a continuity writer for comic books, which he mm-hmm. did in the 1940s, and then as a radio writer, he wrote radio scripts, and then as a TV writer. And I think that all of that plays into the, the, the dynamism of, of The Star's My Destination and, and his other fiction, that, that it, it, it's just powered relentlessly by, by a narrative. Yeah, I'm, I was trying to remember what TV show he wrote for. Was it Tom Corbett or one of the really... I think it was Tom Corbett yeah. he wrote for, uh, the early science fiction shows. But he also wrote for, in the 40s, for The Shadow mm-hmm. and some, I think some other uh, major radio uh, programs that were all produced in New York at that time. Mm-hmm. And early television was all done in New York and he was sort of a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. I gather he was in advertising and copywriting yeah. at one point, too, wasn't right, he? Right, so, he did. Um, yeah. Because... There was a curious thing that happened when I was I was, I was doing uh, research for a book on Harlan Ellison, and I discovered that uh, in the early 60s, some of the second-ranked men's magazines like Rogue and Knight were virtually taken over by science fiction writers at the time. Mac Reynolds, Alfred Bester, I think, was the travel editor or the food editor of uh, Rogue magazine. <laughs> And, but the thing is, they had that, it was a complete imitation of Playboy, and there are pictures uh-huh. of all the editors. And Bester was just way more slick and sophisticated than anybody else there. I mean, he had that little goatee. He really yeah. did look like, uh, you know, kind of uh, tremendously sophisticated satanic character. Uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> like one of his own characters. Right. Like I think, you know, I think he, he often has a Besterish. Uh, Characters in a story of a, a polymath, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, very well versed in, in, in uh, all kinds of literature, uh, music, but also uh, uh, unpredictable. Yeah, okay, all, yeah. all over the map. But what you say, Kessel, about um, the uh, about the narrative drive that he gets from media, I think the advertising mm. was the thing that I was sort of hooking onto. His story in Stars My Destination is an interesting story and a complex story. But that's not what gets me going. That's not why on page two I'm already mesmerized. And by the time we get mm-hmm. to the truly compelling beginning of the, the first chapter, um, why I'm already in his hands, even though he's just given me seven pages of exposition at the beginning of that book. And I think the advertising is what regulates that because he has a master, he has the absolute control of vocabulary, syntax, and rhythm that a good advertising person has, that his sentences are perfectly crafted, hmm. his, uh, his ordering of sentences is perfect, his word choices are rock solid, and he's doing all of that in a way that feels quite subtle. You know, it's not his, there is a clear pronounced sense of style in what he writes, hmm. but the style is not in, an in-your-face style, it's not a, a blatant style. It's just that every so often you get a glimmer that reminds you of how excellently crafted the prose is. I wonder if that's a kind of hook, because you're right, there's a very good narrative hook in it. There are, there are taglines that seem like uh, they could have been advertising slogans. I remember the first, I think the first line of dialogue I ever remembered as a kid was, I kill you, Vorga. I kill you, filthy. I kill you, filthy, yes. I kill you, Vorga. I kill you, filthy, which is repeated in that formulation mm-hmm. repeatedly through this. And it's, yeah, it becomes something that runs through your head like an advertising slogan. And I guess that's a different kind of hook from what he would have learned in the pulp magazines. Because all the pulp writers talked about hooks and payoffs and the, the classic mechanics. But an advertising hook is something that's been through hundreds of revisions to have exactly the perfect right. words for the effect. And I wonder if that training actually, that training together with the pulp training mm-hmm. may have led to that style. Because right. you can't really look back uh, in the 40s 
And I'm sure that if Robert, Robert Silverberg, by the way, told us downstairs before we came up here that none of us know what we're talking about, and but he's I, probably I'm right. Sure, I'm sure we've already <laughs> pervaded misinformation. Yes. Uh, so, Bob, if you're listening to this, uh, you know. Feel free uh, to correct send us. Em- send yeah. email. We want to hear yeah, from exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> we want to hear from you. But my, my sense was that if you go back in the 40s, even though Bester was part of that world, you can't find... You, you can't find the sources for that kind of writing in the pulp stories. You can't find them in Asimov or Heinlein or certainly, well, Van Vogt. Uh, stray phrases here and there, but they were completely out of control and not as deliberately crafted as Bester was. I think, uh, you know, Bester is also aware of, of classic literature. I mean, the, the plot of the uh, Stars of Medicine is the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. And he talked about in The Demolished Man how he... Uh, was influenced by crime and punishment, where uh, he mm-hmm. talked about how you know it was a murder story where you knew who the murderer was from from the beginning. The murderer is the hero, mm-hmm. and uh, that was not the way most detective stories were, or murder stories, crime right. stories were written. And so uh, you know he, he's writing in uh, you know for a, a popular audience, but he he's clearly aware of of the things. The beginning of the, of the stars of my destination echoes uh, a tale of two cities. You know the best of times, the worst of times. He talks about. Uh, how, uh, uh, as Kish mentions, the first part of it, first chapter is really, or prologue, is a description of the solar system and the politics and the uh, teleportation, jaunting has been uh, developed, and there's a, a war between the uh, outer and inner plant planets, and all that is just is set as exposition before we even meet Gulliver Foyle in the, in the proper first chapter. Right. That's true. Uh, and, uh, well, yeah, you're right, there's the Dickensian. Uh, uh, references as well as the uh, classical references, mm-hmm. which I think even some readers in the, at the time must have been able to pick that up. Uh, the other thing that struck me interesting about the, 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 just the basic situation of being uh, abandoned and, and, and spending this massive amount of time building up hatred and revenge mm-hmm. not only makes him one of, the most, one of the first truly nasty, unsympathetic heroes in science fiction, but he, he's, it's, a, it's a plot form that seems to just have echoed ever since. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a new Paul McCauley novel that starts with essentially that situation. Uh, and I wonder if either of you felt that kind of in your own writing, that he's back there somewhere. Well, I want to actually, I, I, part of why I was reading mm-hmm. him is I was thinking, how does he do it? I mm-hmm. want to do that. But I did think about this as I was reading it, because it's not exactly what you say. What mm-hmm. happens is he is... Uh, and I'm not going to spoil, I'm just going to take, talk about what happens in maybe the first 15 pages mm. only. But what happens is that uh, his ship is uh, damaged, his spaceship, everybody mm. else dies. He finds himself trapped in a storage locker that's about 4 by 4 by 9 feet, mm. which is the only thing that holds air left air on the in ship. Field. He uh, uh, doesn't have air. He has a broken space suit that doesn't have oxygen attached. Mm. And so what has to happen is every week or so, he hyperventilates, stuffs himself into his suit, and in five minutes he has to go out to where the air tanks are stored, grab one, bring it back, mm-hmm. knock the, uh, the petcock off or whatever it is, as he shuts the door and he passes out because he's run out of oxygen. He never knows if he's going to wake up again. Mm-hmm. And so 
177 days is almost the first words once we get into Gully Foyle's actual story. Mm. He's been doing this for 177 right. days. You've read this and a lot he is more not angry. He is not. He is in oh. dumb animal mm. survival. He's just, he just in survival just mode. He's in survival out. mode. And it's that, you know, he's not looking forward. All he's doing is just living from air tank to air well, tank. Now that, he's a man who never does look forward. Right. Uh, no, he, he never does. does. He's completely what, uneducated. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, right. Uh, he's, uh, he's smart. They say in his sort of, his merchant marine Mm. He says he's smart, but no skills, no right. interests, no hobbies, no anything. He is just a dumb animal. Mm. What changes that is that the the Vorga, I kill you filthy Vorga, mm. the Vorga ship comes by, basically hesitates, checks out the thing. He rushes out there, shoots all his flares off. It's clear they've seen him, mm. and then they just go on. And the fact that they do that takes him from a 170-day dumb animal survival mode to rage and jealousy, to vengeance. And that's the moment at which he says, I kill you, Vorga, I kill you, filthy, which mm. does become sort of a refrain. And at that point, he starts moving. Now he... Now, vengeance is the one thing that gets him moving. His mm. own survival does not. But vengeance, I have to get off this, this, fix this unsolvable problem to get off this, you know, unescapable mm. death. And he does. And that's when the first intimation we have that he is truly an extraordinary person as we see evolve through the rest of the book. All of that happens in the first 15 pages. And that's what I meant you know, by abandonment. That's amazing. Uh, when I meant by abandonment, I meant that moment of the Vorga passing. Right, right. And that rage then mm. from then on out. But that means mm. that the structure of the story is uh, instead of what we sort of think of as the cliched, dumb, you know, it's like what gets mm. your hero moving is that his village is burned down or she's raped mm. or her mother is killed or the dog is kidnapped. You know, what gets him moving is not the crisis. What gets him moving is the sense that the crisis could have changed and it didn't. Right. And I love the fact that this is a story that doesn't start at the traditional expected moment. It could have started 100 pages earlier with the, mm. the actual uh, climate, when, that, when, the when, the, when there's the wreck, or it could have happened sometime later, and I love that. I think that's a genius decision. Well, but I think mm -hmm. that there are. It becomes evident much later in the book. There's a big reason why he's trapped in that, right. and it's not the reason you expect. Right, okay? so right. The situation he couldn't. If he told that earlier, he would have given right. away a, a big. So plot a lot point. of this is misleading right. on Bester's right. part. You're right. right. But, but it's uh, but that's his interpretation of why he's there, basically. But but it? I think I agree with you that. Um, setting this vengeance motivation early there. And that's one reason I think students or readers who haven't read the book get a, a, a attracted to it is this, you know, it's a pretty universal thing. I mean, it's a, a grave injustice has been done, done to this guy, and he, you know, is determined to get revenge, and he will do anything, anything. in the service mm -hmm. of that revenge. And that's the thing that makes him uh, also an interesting character, is that he's completely amoral. Right. Uh, he, he, he will do awful things, and he does right. awful things. Uh, and he is amoral... He's amoral. He, he has a. He's still amoral at the end. I guess is what I'm thinking. He has sort of. He has a much high. He he transcends into a sort of different relationship with moral morality. Mm -hmm. But he is still. You never see him say, "I'm going to be a good man." He never says. Well, I. He never sees the error of his ways. I think he does because the last mm. thing he wants uh, when he finally the jig is up and he gets caught is he wants them to punish him. He does. Yeah, that's and true. He you're wants, right. He wants. To and he be, wants pay to pay for his crimes right. and he admits all the things he's done, and then they they won't give it to right. him mm. because yeah, he's he, too valuable for plot reasons we won't go into. Right. <laughs> that's true. He wants to make it up. He says in those words. He says, "I want to make it up to everyone." 
You know, I want to be punished. Uh, I want to make it up. In fact, one of the interesting things about the book, beyond the tremendous adventure sequences, it has some amazing set pieces, okay? Uh, Mm. uh, Yeah. But uh, uh, is that it expands in thematic ways it goes on. Right, it goes beyond right. just being a revenge story. Till the end, he's basically indicting all the other characters in the book for their immorality. Right. And, and he's saying, if you're going to arrest me, well, what about when you did this and you right. did that? Uh, you know, we're all, uh, uh, he calls it, uh, the, the British title of the book was Tiger, Tiger, yeah. uh, from the, the Blake poem. Uh, and, and so uh, he's, you know, he's literally a tiger. Uh, but he says that all of the the main characters in the book are are tigers. They're yeah. they're predators, mm-hmm. uh, and most of the human race is not. And and uh, uh, you know what is the the responsibility of a predator to the rest of the race? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, does yeah. he or she have any responsibility? At the, yeah, and I think that's what I mean. It's not that he's amoral at the end, but he is still a tiger right. at the end. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. He is still he is still the same fierce animal he was at the beginning, but he, but he is now a moral tiger. You know, and that that shift. I love the ferocity yeah. of the character he becomes, because at the very end, he threatens all of. He doesn't directly threaten humanity. His actions potentially threaten all of humanity, but are also the only moral action, mm-hmm. and they are the right and best thing. Well, and Bester sets it up at the beginning because Foyle at the beginning is described in his you know uh, personnel report as being the stereo- stereotypical. Stereotypical yeah. common man, right. a man with no mm-hmm. talent. No, he's not a tiger yeah. until Warwick right. passes him, and then that sets the fuse, mm-hmm. and and the rest of the novel follows from that. Which says a lot about human motivation in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. That could, the, the other thing I wanted to know, if you think it works, is the the synesthesia, the stylistic, the per, typographical oh, tricks, yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, again, when I was a kid, I thought I didn't know you could do this. I mean, yeah. it's essentially concrete poetry. Yeah. Uh, in 1956. There, yeah, and just for people who haven't read it, there's a point about two-thirds of the way through where where um, Gullifoyle has synesthesia, and Bester uh, demonstrates that with typographical tricks. So writing gets bigger or it wriggles around mm. the page. It's all this stuff that when you were in third grade, like concrete poetry class, mm. you would practice, you would try things. You'd like make words like where the letters get larger the farther right. into the word. And so he's doing that. He's got a very pronounced point to it in the story. And it is, uh, I don't know, what do you what do you? I think? was just dazzled by that when I first read the book. I, I, you know, I thought, oh, you can't do this. I've never seen a book that does exactly. this. Yeah. Was my, my reaction, you know, exactly. Exactly. So it was really, was, was marvelous. I was delighted. It was, that's the thing to me, I think, that not just in this Stars My Destination, which everyone tends to talk about, but in general, is that there's a certain degree of delight that I get from Bester's stories, in mm-hmm. that just the sheer audacity of him, mm-hmm. and his willingness to try anything, yeah. and and to 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 shake things up, and to and to uh, be outrageous. I I, I uh, and but it's, it always seems mm-hmm. to be in under some control. Yeah. it's not you know everywhere on the map with no with no plan. It always seems he pulls it together in some way. And uh, I mean, there's just something about that that's very invigorating, even today, to read those stories. Uh, uh, you know who reminds me uh, in a weird way of Bester, a much quieter way, is Ted Chang. Okay, oh, yeah. Ted Chang to me uh, does things that you don't expect, and right. every story, and every story is different. And that, that to me is, you know, Chang is not the pyrotechnic writer in that sense. A much quieter pyro. He's pyrotechnic, no. but it's not. It's not that. Uh, 
but at any rate, you know, that kind of, of wild ideation and, and, and complete originality. Uh, or even when he's using a cliche, he, he twists it in a way that you, you don't expect. You know, delight's a good word for mm -hmm. it because uh, I immediately think of Fonley Fahrenheit. That's what I was going to say next. Also, a deeply yes. taught short story. Fonley Fahrenheit is there's a sprightliness to the language. It sounds stu stupid and lame mm -hmm. when I say sprightly, but there is there is a sort of lilting, I don't know, charm, and that causes delight, even though the story and the story is not a happy story. Um, but it's funny. And, but it's and, funny, and, and, and it's funny without having a joke. Mm -hmm. You know, there's right. no joke to it. There's no look at what I'm doing. It's just this like witty language that presents a story, and you kind of know what's coming all the way through the story, and yet it still feels like a tremendously satisfying payoff. And there's a darkness, uh, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. To, to the thing it, it, again, that's sort of to me like maybe the Coen Brothers, uh, like Fargo or something, mm -hmm. where there's there's this awful stuff happening, but it's also done with a. a Awry uh, irony and, and, and humor, uh, uh, you know the the android there, the insane android uh, doing its lunatic rumba. Yeah. And, sing, and the little uh, jingle it sings. I was going to say uh, those, you know, the, the advertising thing comes in again because yeah. the, I kept saying the, the word read shows up in one of those. Yeah. And again, I'll read, I'll read, I'll read, I'll read. Yeah. And I think that's this is a guy who knows how to uh, how to hook readers in in a kind of second by second. Uh, in fact, I think he did a TV adaptation of that called really? Murder and the Android. Uh, and it was on, I don't know what show it is, somebody will correct us. Oh. Something like Desilu Playhouse. It wasn't on I wish I had seen that, gosh. It's, it's, it's around. Is uh, it available? Oh. I think, uh, I, don't know if the, I don't know if the actual it's video is available. Or something like Kinescope, something like that. Uh, there were a couple of radio adaptations and that sort of thing. Speaking of Robert Silverberg, in his book, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which has been reprinted as Science Fiction 101, but I, I can't remember the original title, but it was a, 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 a collection of like 15 stories mm -hmm. that were very, he thought, very influential on his developing his writing. He has finally Fahrenheit in there. Mm -hmm. He has a little essay, and he says there's one flaw in Bester's story. He says it's a flawless story except for the first sentence. Hmm. Which uh, he he claims Always is a, or? Is, uh, well, then that, <laughs> he, he claims in that story that there's a, a point of view issue. Uh, uh, so you know he he doesn't know which of us I am these days, yeah, but we right. know one truth, you know, and and the uh, and then and then after that it, it jumps back into uh, a description of this landscape where they're looking for a child who's been kidnapped, mm -hmm. uh, and he says that that first sentence is a violation of of uh, viewpoint. I'm not sure if I agree with that. But at any rate, uh, 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 he does uh, appraise the story as being, you know, again, uh, flawlessly constructed. And the viewpoint, the control of viewpoint in it is, again, something that, uh, as, as a young reader, I, had, I don't think I'd ever thought about viewpoint before. And, and suddenly this, you're wondering, okay, when, whose viewpoint is this right, at it this keeps, moment? It keeps changing pronouns uh, right. from singular to plural and first person to third uh -huh. person. Uh, in the in the in that in, in, throughout the story, uh, which uh, has a reflection of the psychology of the the character, but uh, but it's very confusing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know when I read it as a boy, I think, oh my, this grammar is all messed up. My teacher would not like right. this. Right, <laughs> right. And there's a, a charm to that. I was just uh, trying to find the rhyme itself. His his rhymes, I think, are part of it. His his ability to write jingles. He has um, one in uh, the, the uh, in the. Uh, the Demolished Man, right, his yeah. uh, killer, Ben Reich, uh, uh, you know, it's in a, a, a murder mystery in the world where uh, there are telepathic uh, telepaths mm. who can read your mind against your will. And so the police have telepaths and their employee, 
the employee, so they could, you know, you'd think uh, detect if you killed the crime, you right, kill yeah. someone. You could. So what Ben Wright does at one point is he has somebody write. He hires. He gets a jingle uh, that's written by an advertising genius mm. that is such a, a, a mind worm that it gets stuck in his head, and he keeps repeating yeah. it over and over again. So it blocks his thoughts from the, the mind readers. That would be all the telepaths could get so, was that rhyme. It's a ten, ten, tensor, said the tensor, tensor, said the tensor. Tension, apprehension, and dissension had begun. Oh, thank you. Oh, now It is brain. a mind worm. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. the, is, is the um, demolished man as important as the stars my destination? When we were looking at figuring out which one to in, include in this Library of America thing, it was because of the huge number of writers who have talked about the stars by destination, William Gibson says, it turns out William Gibson told me he hadn't read that many science fiction novels as a kid, but this is the one that really, you know, blew him away. And I've talked to other people who say, that would, would have preferred having The Demolished Man, because in its own way, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's anticipating a lot of Philip K. Dick and a lot of uh, later things that play with... Um, uh, well, with, with mind games in a way that there were, it seems to me there were only a handful of writers in the fifties who knew what to do with with psi powers because everybody yeah. was talking about psi, and uh, it's one of those themes that was really big in science fiction for about a decade, and it's rare these days mm-hmm. uh, because it's nobody the, the, nobody the people were looking at the Ryan ex- experiments at Duke University and thinking well maybe and. John W. Campbell thought psychic Campbell powers. Campbell was way behind that. He was pushing yeah. his writers to write about it in the 50s. But Bester was one who figured out, this is something I can do to manipulate point of view. and manip- It became a literary device mm-hmm. for him. He wasn't, I don't think the demolished man really seriously gives a moment's thought to uh, real telepathy. telepathy. Right. I, 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 right. I agree with that. It's sort of a, uh, I think in most t- cases, well, and actually Damon Knight in one of the essays he wrote about uh, Bester, he, he complained that Bester's science was often messed up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and uh, Bester didn't care about that, mm-hmm. not too much anyway. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and I think he was right. I think Knight's, mm-hmm. you know, caviling about that is, is really sort of beside the point. Uh, Bester is a very uh, meticulous writer in, in, in the ways that matter, it seems to me. Well, that's my point. I think he was taking the, uh, he was taking some of the devices of science fiction uh, and finding their metaphorical power, while other science fiction writers were asking, "Well, could this? How would how would this work?" Right, he was not interested right. in the mechanics. He, he didn't care about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and the, and and the the next writer to really uh, do that consistently probably was Dick, uh, because Dick's science was as goofy as it was whatever he needed. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And he'll put, he'll put it off the shelf, and so. Uh, I, I guess the question I started out with is: the demolished man as important today as the star is my destination. Hmm. To my mind, it's not as compelling, mm-hmm. um, but is, does that mean it's less important? I don't know. Because if I look at Stars My Destination, I'm like, you know, when you just said that we mm-hmm. see um, Demolished Man presaging uh, Dick, it's mm-hmm. like, what does Stars My Destination lead to? And uh, I can't immediately point to somebody and say, well, obviously, so-and-so comes from there, the way you could with Dick. That's true. I'm going to say that uh, I think the the Dimash Man is a great book. Uh, one of the first Hugo Award for, for a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I think I like the Sajman Edition more, Tiger Tiger more. Um, it does, but it does I think have some things that are really notable uh, about it. One of the things is this idea that the hero is the villain. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. from yeah. the beginning, he's, yeah. a, he's a murderer. But you you get drawn in. He's a charismatic character. He's one of these bester characters who's really uh, hard not, not to be fascinated mm-hmm. by. One of the other things he does, in, uh, and this was, I think, something that he did 
maybe other writers were doing this, like Sturgeon, but but Bester was a, a Freudian. He was very interested mm -hmm. in psychology. He majored in psychology at, at Penn. Oh. And uh, and and this was the era when Freudian psychology ruled. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he he often has this as an element of his stories. And one of the the uh, the uh, major plot elements of uh, the uh, the demolished man is that Ben Reich, uh, he the man he murders is his business rival, mm. and at the beginning they're having a, a kind of war between their uh, empires, business empires over uh, you know turf, and uh, Ben finally uh, says you know they're about they're really destroying each other. He he offers a, a deal to the other guy, and it's done in this uh, secret code they do. They, mm. they don't have encryption, but they have a code between businessmen, and he sends the code and saying. Uh, you know, and the best lists all the different codes that mm. he could put, and the code means you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, off, giving him an offer, and the, the code comes back, and uh, you just see the four-letter code, and Ben Wright says, "Offer refused," you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, he, and that's the motivation he has for he has to murder the guy now because mm -hmm. the guy has refused his offer. Then you read the code, and you match it to the list, and it's offer accepted. Oh. Okay, oh, and for the entire book, uh, Ben is motivated by something that. That I mean, uh, he knows the codes. He has them memorized uh -huh. in his yeah. head, but he, he miss. And yet, and this is the key to his psychology: is that he deliberately, or not deliberately, unconsciously, wants to kill this guy. Uh -huh. Okay, even though he won the battle, and uh, that's something I don't think any other science fiction writer would have done at that time. Not at that time. That's a bold move, too. You know, a bold and a subtle move. No, that when I first read the book, uh, I was thinking I had that list of of the codes there, and then oh, the code though. comes back, and I thought, oh wait a minute, he messed up here. Okay, mm -hmm. it's offer accepted, and then I realized. Yeah, but, but but I mean, and yes, that that when I read it, I was like, oh, the you know, the copy editor missed this. Yeah, I was, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it wrong-footed me as a reader, so that I was kicked out back into my head, out of the immersive hmm. reading experience, as I went, wait a minute, that's not right. But that also left me a little off balance for the entire rest of the book. Because it was like, it's such a big thing, but it's such a little thing. It's just like a couple of letters, you know, that could have happened. Careless copy editor could have missed it. Mm -hmm. So I was I was left in some ways as uncertain as anybody in the story. But wait, at the end, it turns out that's true. And it's a marvelous moment when I realized that this is not sloppy. There, When you say he's he's a very careful writer. He's a very conscious mm -hmm. writer. Right. And it's so obvious sometimes with tiny details like that. And that, that little trick he does there is something I think, you know, I was a naive young writer, reader rather, mm -hmm. not a writer. And, uh, you know, as a science fiction reader of tons of, of pulp science fiction, writers don't do that. Right. On purpose. So you don't mm -hmm. believe it. Yeah, you, you don't, don't believe, believe it. it. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. You know, so, so you, you, you don't, you know, a writer would never deliberately I didn't. I didn't get yeah. it. Okay, yeah. until I read the whole book, and I said, "Oh no, that was that was done entirely on purpose." Mm -hmm. I was talking to um, I, a, a, a science fiction writer of that generation, not Mr. Silverberg, but somebody who, <laughs> uh, who preferred the Demolished Man simply because of that sort of formal perfection of it. Mm -hmm. uh, that his and, and you write structurally, the stars, my destination is very complex, but there's a neatness to the plotting of the Demolished Man. That was. It must have seemed so elegant to people reading it at the time, that uh, I, I think that is what really uh, impressed him. In other words, he was looking at it as a technical feat, uh, which it is in a way. Have you ever seen the uh, essay that Bester wrote about his his one and only meeting with John W. Campbell? No, uh, I, I may have, but I don't remember. It's, what. it's hilarious. Uh, it was uh, 
in the late 40s, and he had mm-hmm. written s- stories for Campbell and Astounding going back to the early 40s. Not a lot, but a yeah. few. And uh, he'd recently come back to writing science fiction, and he wrote a story called Adi and Id, mm-hmm. which had Freudian psychology as the basis of the, of the, the right. plot. And C- Campbell had recently uh, bought into... Uh, Dianetics. Dianetics. And Hubbard, Hubbard's uh, article on Dianetics mm. is going to appear like in the next couple issues or something. Wow. And so uh, Bester comes in to see him about the story because uh, Campbell said, look, I, I like your story. I'm going to take it, but you need to change some things. And comes in and, mm. and uh, uh, Campbell says, look, you know, you're going to have to rewrite this because uh, the psychology it's based on is completely out the window now because uh, this Freudian stuff is obsolete because uh, of this new new art uh, science of the mind that uh, Ellen Hubbard's come up with, and so he hands over the the galley proofs of, of the Dynetics article. And, it's all and, over now. And, and he asks, he makes best to read them in the office. Okay, oh. while he's sitting at the desk and uh, waiting for his reaction, investors like paging through, and yeah, about a third page, he's saying, "This is garbage." Okay, I can't mm-hmm. believe this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he wants to sell the story to Campbell, and it's it was just hilarious. Uh, uh, and then Campbell gets all excited and says, "You know, well, you're repressing it. Okay, you know, you're resisting. It. It's, I know it's a it's a it's an overwhelming uh, a truth that you can't accept, and uh, you know it, it probably touches some deep engram in, your, in your mind. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, it's probably because your mother tried to abort you with." A button. Okay, <laughs> when you think, think you know the 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 uh, the fetus remembers. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, what happened to him later, though? Because you have two amazing stories, amazing novels, and a bunch of great short stories. Right. Yeah. And by uh, in, before 1956, mm-hmm. and then the later novels, I barely, I barely remember reading the commute, Computer Connection or Golem 100 or. Mm, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when. Um, his first novel in the mid seventies uh, was called *The Indian Giver*. It appeared in Analog and mm-hmm. got published as uh, um, *The Computer Connection*, mm-hmm. and uh, it was serialized in like three issues. And I was so disappointed. I couldn't believe mm-hmm. that this was the guy. I, I, I really worshipped his stuff. Okay, yeah. and and yeah. Uh, I was just I was didn't have it. Okay, no. and what it, what is that? I don't I don't quite understand. What it is, you know, it would have been a, he'd basically gone away from science fiction writing for fifteen years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny; the last story he wrote for FNSF uh, before he, he had this hiatus of no science fiction was called uh, "They Don't Make Life Like They Used To," which was uh, and I was subscribing as a, mm-hmm. like a thirteen-year-old. Yeah, and it, had, it was it had a, like had sex in it. I was really <laughs> that know, made a great yeah, literature. Uh, but it was a really good story. Actually, Maltzberg has talked about this as being a, a, a wonderful, a, a great, a great science fiction story. Not one remembered very mm-hmm. well. And then, but then he comes back, and it's like I don't know. Like he was, he maybe he was just doing it because felt he had to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I know he didn't have to do it. I don't, I don't know. No, I think he'd, made, he'd, he'd been doing travel writing and that sort of thing. Right, he? right. You know, Holiday Magazine, I think he was... Right, what happened was he was the travel editor of Holiday for yeah. like a decade, and then the magazine went under. Right. And, and yeah. I don't know if he needed the money, but he came back to writing science fiction. Yeah, I have his bibliography in my oh, hand. Oh, excellent. And uh, um, it's, yes, it, it's interesting because uh, he's, he only had a handful of novels. The Demolished Man came out in 52, Stars My Destination in 56, Tiger, Tiger. Mm. And then, yeah, the computer connection was uh, 1975, right, so right. 19 Almost years later. Years. Um, and then the Go- Golem 100 is 1980, The Deceiver is 81, Psycho Shop with Roger Zelazny, 1999, mm. 
which uh, so we see a huge gap in there. And with his short fiction, his first short fiction story was published in 1939. Mm-hmm. And then he has a steady run of three and four a year, um, right up until um, we get to 54. And then there's a gap. Then he does it again in 58, uh, 59. And then there's a gap to 64. And then there's a gap until the 70s. So it's clear that uh-huh. he stopped writing for certain periods. And, be, and I don't know what he did during those gaps, but the fact uh, so much good writing happens early, and then so much, then there is like a substantial, substantial thing. And I don't know if any, any of us want to talk about the fact that he also had 20, well, 15 years of really good short stories before yeah. his first book came first out. First book I, came. I, was, I actually was a, uh, also dazzled by his short fiction. I remember buying a, a signet paperback of a called Starburst, Starburst, which is a yeah. collection of mm-hmm. short stories. And again, every story brilliant. And I think that had the, the Finally Fahrenheit in it and mm-hmm. uh, Adi and Id and, oh. and uh, uh, The Pie Man and, and uh, 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 gosh, uh, they're, they're all, uh, they're, they're amazing stories. Uh, That's an irony. There may be other careers like that. I can't think of them offhand where somebody uh, comes back into the field after he's become a legendary influence and he He's not with the field anymore. Right. Ironically, the right. field has moved beyond him because of him. Right. right. Yeah. And and my sense of, with a computer connection story is that there, he was he was almost trying to write what he thought seventies science fiction might be, mm, yeah. and he was just his his ear was off, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think the motivation was there either. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't. And the question I might ask is, do you how much science fiction of of the seventies say had he read? Okay. I, that's mm-hmm. you know maybe he hadn't even read things. So. That, no, that's what that's my that's what I mean. I think I think he may have been thinking uh, that without reading science fiction of the seventies, without probably possibly even knowing what had been going on in the new wave and that sort of thing, he may have just assumed this was what it would be like. And because well, you know, of his it's name. hard. I mean, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to be a current current when you get older. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a way you sort of draw into, you develop the things that you do and and it's hard to be creating yourself anew when you're in your 50s and 60s. Do uh, other writers have to do that that aren't science fiction writers? It seems to me that when Faulkner gets to be old and he writes a fable, he's not paying any attention to what's going on. Right. I think that's right. Writer. I think yeah. that that tends to be the case. And sometimes it works fine. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think Tolstoy was reading the, yeah. the latest magazines. Right. Well, I think outside of our field also, there's um, slightly more weight given to the consistent uniform style. You know, that once somebody builds a style, it's like nobody asks Faulkner to try something different. Right. It's like what, um, and in fact, MFA programs and a lot of uh, sort of conventional literature training uh, seeks to help you find your voice. Mm. And I think in science fiction, when you're learning science fiction, either by writing or reading people, you're less likely to have that happen. I think with fantasy it happens. We see that with like Kat Valenti where we have a very consistent style across all her work. But I think we're less, we're less directed to develop a voice and then to stick to our voice. And a consistent mm-hmm. voice also allows you to stick with old, old storylines or old sort of uh, mm. mindsets, old thematic you know, interests and stuff like that. You don't have to necessarily develop a 21st century sensibility if your voice was built in the 1970s, and so your materials are also, you know, mm. rooted in the 1970s. I, I get the sense that the, the science fiction writers who emerged with very distinctive voices, which would include Bester and Sturgeon and certainly Cordwainer Smith, 
did that entirely on their on their own right. without any right. input from the community, without much input right. from editors. There was an interesting book a few years ago called An Aesthetics of Junk Fiction, which is really <laughs> it's offensive in yeah, a lot no, of ways, no. but he's got a lot of good points. He's really actually quite per perspicacious. Mm -hmm. And one of the points he makes between what he calls, well, what we would call a pulp writer or, or a professional writer and a, an art writer, first of all, the, the, the MFA writers, the literary writers, they think of art. Uh, mm. the, the, the daily writers making a living at it think of craft. You know, the literary writers yeah. think of talent. The, the, the working writers think of skill. You know, mm -hmm. So it's a series, largely a series of technical problems. And I think when you look at the way even people like Mickey Spillane talked about their writing, they never had any pretensions other than, I can do this good. I, mechanically, I know how to do this. Right. And there's a pride in craft that uh, I think was kind of a governing aesthetic probably in the 40s, not just in science fiction. Right. I have to say that, you know, Bester's not alone in this, this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I think that might, we're being maybe thrown off a little bit by the 15-year gap or 20-year gap where he wasn't writing mm -hmm. much fiction, if any. Uh, because if you think of the career of Sturgeon or yeah. Bradbury, mm -hmm. okay, it's, in my opinion about their work is that their best work is in the first 20 years of their careers, and then as they, the, they may have written a lot more later, but it just it, it can't hold a candle to the early work. Um. <coughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's a necessary thing for all writers to... to Evolve in that way, or no? There's there's almost a point in some careers where you can simply say, okay, this is essentially the end of the Im important part of their career. Bradbury, I think, it was when something wicked this way came. Mm, yeah. that, that was his his novel. He'd gotten his small town carnival darkness, and he was kind of doing Bradbury after that. Matheson did The Shrinking Man in 1954, and basically never wrote anything resembling science fiction after that. Mm -hmm. But all the classic stories, all the ones that became influential, not counting his work in Hollywood. You know, I Am Legend and The Shrinking Man and the Third from the Sun stories, they were all done by 1954, and then you started writing things like A Stir of Echoes. And mm -hmm. It became a lot more successful, but if, uh, if there's any influence that Matheson had, it was over by 54. Well, I think there are, you know, writers who are great into their 70s and 80s, but, but I'm saying that there is often a, a case that a writer, does, you know, gets a little arthritic, okay, right. or doesn't yeah. really... And, and a writer like Bester, who's... who's Stock and trade seem to me to be dazzlement, yeah. or innovation, yeah. or surprise, or uh, uh, you know maybe you can't do that as well. I don't think you can keep that up. Well, in 1970, you've got Delaney. Right. <laughs> you right. know, if you want flashy, if you want sparkle, it's like other people are coming at it boldly from mm. other directions. And also another example, we have to stop in a minute because we both have to be, we all have to be places. The other name that comes to mind was John Brunner who did yeah. spectacular things and then tried to continue doing the same spectacular things. And after the trilogy, there's not much there. Mm -hmm. right. so, well, thank you all for being here. Uh, we should continue this conversation. That's a problem. We always get a good conversation. Yeah, going. yeah. We've got to talk I'm about a, everybody else. I, as you may know, big Bester fan, I guess it's evident. Yeah, well, I think too. we all are. Well, I'm right. glad we could yeah. be here and talk about them, and we'll talk about uh, somebody else the next time. Awesome. So thanks for co-hosting Kedge, and thanks for being thank here. You. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And how do I stop this? Um, <laughs> hit the stop button. Yeah.